Yacht Rock Radio, on air and online at YachtRockRadio.com. Our guest joining us on the phone is Bill Schnee. Hey, Bill, how are you? Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Doing good, thanks. Well, I think we should start uh, with a sort of a long introduction of, of who you are for our listeners that might not connect the name Bill Schnee with the Yacht Rock universe. So you are a master uh, music engineer, a pioneer in producing and engineering, and uh, a 50-year career. You're responsible for 125 gold and platinum records. Uh, you've won two Grammys with Steely Dan, and you've worked with everyone from Barbara Streisand, Marvin Gaye, George Benson, Chicago, uh, Boz Skaggs, Pablo Cruz, Steely Dan, the list goes on. I mean, too many to mention, really, in an introduction. Uh, but you are the guy in the... When they talk about the guy in the chair uh, behind the board making everybody sound incredible, that's you, and that's what you've been an expert at doing for the last 50 years. Uh, I try my best, that's for sure. And our fans would be happy to know the about the two Grammys you won with Steely Dan. And I, I've, I've read some... Uh, excerpts from your book we're certainly going to talk i think it's one of the best titles of a book i've ever heard chairman at the board right is the name of your book which is so fantastic uh, a play on just the uh you know the 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 type a personality of a chairman of the board i mean the guy in the room that knows everything that everybody wants his attention uh you're the chairman at the board at the mixing board at the music board at the console right uh so your book chairman at the board uh, well, I guess first of all, let's let's talk about the book. Tell us about the idea for the book, how it came, how it's how it's working for you. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I've had a very blessed career. Worked with an awful lot of incredible, uh, talented, incredibly talented musicians and singers, and uh, I love to tell stories. And uh, I've told you know I've, I've acquired quite a few, as you can imagine, over the years uh, with working with these people, and I when I would tell stories, people would say, why don't you write a book? And uh, it never really moved me because I thought it was just going to be, uh, well, uh, it was too self-serving. It would be, I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that. And it wasn't until uh, a producer of a Brazilian artist took me to dinner after our session and said, you should write a book. And I said, yes, I've heard it before. And he said, no, but seriously, the music business, as we know it, was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, and peaked in the 70s into the 80s. It was a very short time, really, a very iconic time, and it'll never be repeated again. And you were there. And when he said you were there, it dawned on me, I could write stories that I heard that I had nothing to do with so that to break it up so that it wasn't just I did this, then I did that. Unfortunately, when the, when the publisher did the editing, I think they chopped out, they wanted to talk about all the the artists and they chopped out too much of those uh other stories but there's still some in there but that was that's when i decided to write the book and that's a great uh you know i never really thought of it that way that recorded recorded music and uh you know really rock and roll it, it was born in the 50s uh and really peaked as far as studio musicianship and uh, the music studio and producing and mixing this music it peaked in the 80s. So that's a pretty, in the, in the, in the timeline of human history, that's a really, you, you're right, that's such a short amount of time. And you were there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is yeah, so cool. Very, very, very privileged. So the title, Chairman at the Board, it, 
was that your nickname or like who came up with that title? I, I'm guessing that was your that was on the back of your softball team shirt. <laughs> no, no, Schnee Studio was on the back of the softball team, <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, actually, it, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a friend of mine that uh, when I told him I was going to write a book, he mentioned it to his girlfriend, who funny enough didn't really know that much about recording, and uh, she came up with the title. Oddly enough. And it's funny because some people, you know, they, they, if they read it too quick, they think they say it as chairman of the board. And I have to correct them and say, no, no, that's Frank Sinatra. That's not me. Right. <laughs> I'm chairman at the board. Your yeah. eyes can play tricks on you if you, if you read that title uh, too fast. Right. And uh, another title, the working title, was Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. And the publisher liked that so much that they made that uh, subtitle under the chairman at the board. So, Chairman at the board, recording the soundtrack of a generation. And that's available at BillSchnee.com. Yeah, or anywhere books are sold and Amazon, anywhere, yeah. Anywhere you buy books. All right, so right. you worked on uh, Asia from Steely Dan. And I, I mean more than just worked on it. I, I read that you suggested, like they left it up to you where to record that album. And yeah. I wanted to ask you about this quote. You had suggested that you wanted to record it in a studio that was, quote, on the funky side. What does that mean? What was that? Well, uh, yeah. When Gary Katz, the producer of Steely Dan, called and asked, would you like to record their new album? Uh, I said, oh, absolutely. And <clears throat> I, I should tell you that I did have a little bit of uh, concern because several of my friends, musician friends, had played on their previous records, uh, Jeff Beccaro, Michael Amartian, and they had told me uh, that, you know, the sessions were pretty microscopic, meaning they had the microscope out and they were, uh, you know, investigating anything and everything. And that's, I don't like working that way very much. You know, I, my creative juices flow when we can, you know, get going. And in fact, I, 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 I sometimes start pushing people a little too much. I just like to keep it moving. So I was concerned about that. But I was very happy to find out that that wasn't the case. But when he called me, he said, um, he said, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have a revolving door of drummers. And so you'll, <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be getting a new drum sound every couple of days. And I said, that's fine. Uh, and it was. Um, but the uh, studio was, you know, I had come to like this little studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood that was behind the mastering lab, the Doug Sachs, the great mastering engineer's place where I mastered uh, uh, almost 80% of my career was with Doug. And uh, it was a funky little studio in that it wasn't, it wasn't super polished or whatever, but it, it, it was, uh, and small, it has small control room. The room was, you know, pretty average for a, what you would call a, a small studio for a rock band kind of thing. And, uh, but the console, the recording console, and it sounded incredible. So I knew I could get great sounds out of it. And I already had a good amount of history in that studio. So I asked him, I said, is it okay if we record in my favorite studio? And he said, sure. And as far as I know, he, Donald or Walter, never went and saw the studio until the first day of recording. That's the most amazing part of the story. So they never went there to, to check it out. They just trusted you from the get-go. They showed up for work at the place you told them to go. Imagine that, yeah. That's unbelievable. <laughs> now, you mentioned... Um, a revolving door of drummers. How, how many drummers um, worked on that album? Well, let's see. Um, the opening cut, Black Cow, was Paul Humphrey, uh, uh, which, funny enough, I, as far as I know, that's the only, as far as I can remember, I should say, that's the only time I ever recorded him. 
Um, and then Asia with Steve Gadd. Steve Gadd came in. We we had him two days, and we cut four tracks. And uh, uh, I, I honestly, I was surprised that any of them made the album because after the first day of recording, I heard Donald and Walter talking, and they didn't. They weren't very impressed with him. And I I said, <laughs> Are you serious? Why? And they said, Well, you know, we like a backbeat that's more laid back, like Jim Keltner or Jeff Beccaro. And I said, guys, I do too. Those are two of my favorite drummers as well. But listen to what this guy played today. And then the second day, he played Asia, the song. <laughs> and uh, and there you go. Yeah. So not only did they take it, but they titled the album after it. Then we had, um, we had Bernard Purdy, who played on a couple of cuts. Ed Green, I got the news. And then uh, Josie was Jim Keltner, again, one of my favorite drummers. Uh, I cut... They recut. I cut a version of Peg uh, in the on the tracking dates, but they recut it with uh, Rick Morata, and uh, and I'm glad they did. the The version that I cut was very good, but Rick plays that great upbeat skipping hi hat that really makes Peg, you know, glide along. So, yeah, it was great. Just the revolving door was there, and they were just all great drummers. You know, somebody asked me once, you know. The drum sounds uh, are very, very similar. I said, well, they are all good drummers that knew how to tune their drums, and they were all mic'd in the same studio the same way. And actually, uh, I mean, I can hear on Peg, the, the, I can hear that the bass drum is different than the rest of the tracks, but uh, that, that's the reason. It was a good studio with great electronics and uh, uh, just, a, just a fantastic tracking time uh i can't say it enough i remember getting in my car every day and popping in a cassette of the day's work and i would think to myself what is this it's not jazz but it's kind of jazzy and it's sometimes it's a little bluesy and even kind of rocky sometimes and so i don't know what bag it fits in but one thing it's incredible that's one thing for sure it, it has become uh, one of the best albums of all time. I mean, when you look at the top 10 list of, of recorded music, a lot of people use the album like to test out their hi-fi system to make sure their right. speakers are hooked up right. Uh, right. You, okay, so counting you, that was seven drummers. And the thing, I my takeaway from your story is that you were almost the drummer on Peg. No, I don't know where that came from. Oh, I thought no, you no. said I thought you said you laid down some... Oh, sorry, I... Re I recorded a version of Peg uh, with a different drummer, and I can't remember who the drummer was. To be okay. honest, okay. So okay, uh, yeah. I get. So my my lack of knowledge of of what it takes to be the chairman at the board. When you said <laughs> I recorded a version of Peg, I thought you meant that you played drums on it. Okay. No, and the other thing, I, I was a little confused because you're a musician. I mean, you you yeah. started as a musician in a band called L Eighteens. Uh, what'd you play? Um. Oh, I was a jack of all master of none. I started music lessons on the trumpet, then I went to switch to sax, and then ultimately got keyboard lessons and played organ in the L.A. teens. Uh, I am, however, a wannabe drummer, funny that you would say that, uh, and uh, and actually not half bad, except my time is terrible. Uh, <laughs> I rush I rush like crazy. Like I said, I, I like to move things along quickly. I talk fast, I act fast, and I drum a little too fast. But uh, and you know, the other interesting thing about that that uh, your your most into Steely Dan fans I'm sure know, uh, but for those that don't, is that when they went to, uh, you know, a couple of years later they started the next album. The interesting thing is 
they switched everything up. Um, they went to New York instead of L.A., and they were on this incredible search for for the best drum track. And they did it. And they didn't have a revolving door of drummers. They 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 did try a couple of different ones for sure. But they were they were looking for the perfect drum track. And I remember Jeff Picaro, the great drummer, who was a very good friend of mine. Uh, when he he got back from New York, we had lunch, and he was telling me uh, that he said they just completely beat me up. I recorded the same song with three different rhythm sections, and all they wanted was the best drum track. They were trying to, they were figuring that I would play a little differently with different rhythm sections. And once they, and then all they listened to were my drums. And when they had the track they thought was the best, then they would overdub everything onto that track, which seems, if when I talk about microscope recording, that's uh, th that's a, a very high level of that. Um, and that led their search for that perfect drum track, led them to uh, giving the their engineer. Uh, the money and uh, freedom to build what became what was called Wendell, which was the first computer that played drums with drum samples in it. Um, and uh, that Wendell is all over that album. They'll list drummers and say who they were, but a lot of it went into Wendell and got, quote, perfected. <laughs> and for me, I think, I, I personally think Asia is a a smoother, better feeling album. That's just my take on it. But I think I think that's a, a part of it. I, the other part of it is that when they did Gaucho, there was a lot of problems, a lot of problems, starting with, you know, Walter uh, had a, um, he got hit by a taxi. His girlfriend overdosed oh and later sued him. There were all kinds of um, legal issues with the record company. Uh, and what one of the worst things that, that happened that befell that poor album was a great song, which there are online some outtakes uh, of a, a song called The Second Arrangement, uh, was accidentally erased by an assistant engineer. We should probably have a moment of silence for his life. Uh, there, <laughs> but uh, but uh, it was accidentally erased, and uh, the guys took it really, really hard. They tried to recut it, and could not get one that felt as good as what they had. And so they gave up and never ever recorded it. It went away and it's actually a quite a good song. And so oh because of gosh. that, and because of that, they went back to the tracks I cut from Asia and they took a song that was originally called, Were You Blind That Day? And they uh, reworked the lyrics and the melody to a bit and turned it into Third World Man. Uh, which is on Gaucho and uh, with Steve Gadd. That's one of the four Steve Gadd tracks that I cut. And uh, honestly, for me, I, maybe it's, I don't think it's just because I got used to the lyrics, Were You Blind That Day? Because I like the way the melody Donald uh, phrased it better than what he did on uh, Third World Man, but it's still a great song. I, I just can't imagine that engineer who accidentally erased... Okay one of their favorite songs on the Gaucho album. You've got, I got to dive into this a little deeper. Did he, did they execute him? I mean, was he, did they throw it? Did they have security like in a scene in a movie, just throw him out the front doors through the glass? Did he land in the street? What happened to that guy? Yeah. Is yeah he you know, I, I, I don't honestly know. I've never been able to find out. Uh, I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure he, I would think 
if he didn't quit the business, uh, he, he should have. I just can't imagine. Because like I said, I know that the guys took it really hard. It was just, you know, these accidents happen, but they were so into the song and so into the version that they finally had cut. And it was pretty far along. Like I said, if you go on YouTube oh and put in gosh. the second arrangement, you can hear it, uh, the condition that it was in. And, uh, you know, probably from a, a cassette or something. But still, you'll hear how good the song is. And, uh, yeah, so it was, it was really, really sad. But like I said, that whole album was just plagued with problems. Well, anytime I'm having a bad day from this point forward, I'll think of the of the young engineer <laughs> that accidentally erased a great Steely Dan song. Our guest is go. Bill Schnee. He's uh, a world-famous uh, music engineer. Uh, his book is uh, so wonderfully titled Chairman at the Board. And uh, one thing I wanted to hit on uh, that you were just talking about is Wendell, what, uh, what they called the first drum sampling computer that came out of the... Uh, um, the story of Jeff Pecoro having to play his drum tracks over and over and over to get it perfect and perfect and perfect. And their engineer came up with uh, Wendell, this, this drum sampling computer. Are you telling me that Steely Dan is responsible for inventing the drum machine? Uh, well, you know, there was someone else in Los Angeles that had been working on it already as well. But I think actually he finished Wendell was finished before the uh, the other the other one that came out in LA I think so by the way there's another great story I love telling uh, about those sessions especially with Steve Gadd so as I mentioned after the first day with Gadd they weren't that impressed but I was blown away so I called uh, the great record producer Richard Perry who is a very good friend of mine and we did a lot of fantastic albums together so I called the great record producer, Richard Perry, who I'd done a lot of great records with. And I said, Richard, you know, this Steve Gadd guy, right? And he said, of course. I said, you know, he's in L.A. It might have been the first time he was in L.A. I don't know. I said, I'm recording him right now with Steely Dan, and he is a monster. And he said, do you think I could get a session with him? And I said, uh, well, we start at 2 o'clock every day. I suppose you could get a 10 o'clock in. Let me ask the producer. So I called Gary Katz, said, you know, Richard would love to get in and do a session with steve since he's leaving town the next day and he said uh he had a great he had great respect for richard gary had great respect for richard as well he should and he said sure but just please get him out on time because richard loved to have options and he would take forever to to get a track sometimes and gary knew that so he said the guys will kill me if we start late tomorrow so i mm -hmm. said okay so i said richard we got to be out at one i've promised i'll i'll turn the console off and he said no problem so he came in the next day uh, he worked it out with steve and a couple of the other uh, musicians that had been playing on the album on steely's album and came in the next day and we recorded you make me feel like dancing with leo sayer <laughs> and what i was so impressed with when i first heard steve gad was 50 ways to leave your lover by paul simon and because he plays that great drag snare thing and so you listen to uh you make me feel like dancing and you'll hear a, a different version of that and uh so it was pretty darn cool and we got it a miracle of miracles we got it in two and a half hours which is unheard of the, the track for richard perry and richard said can we do a second song and i said richard we got to be out on time he said we will we will and lo and behold we cut another song called how much love that was the third single from that album so it was a pretty fruitful day and then and then we went that afternoon we cut asia the song so 
that's kind of a big day for uh for that drummer i mean those three yeah, huge songs absolutely. in one day that's awesome absolutely so you know working on on those steely dan albums and the fact that you're a, a jack of all trades as far as a musician musician goes you played trumpet and keyboards and maybe some drums were you tempted at all to to lay down just a few notes in a, in one song and kind of hide them in the track just so you could tell your friends you were on this album maybe not even this album but any of the albums you've worked on with Neil Diamond, uh, no. just throw in a quick uh, ba 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 on a Neil Diamond song and say that you no. were on the album. No, the cl well, the, the closest is you know on albums that I produce, um, like uh, I've definitely appear on like uh, Huey Lewis or Pablo Cruz, Boz Skaggs. I've appeared uh, uh, as a songwriter and and a musician once in a while, uh, but surprisingly not that often. Uh, the, the trouble is, the, the good news, bad news, uh, I popped as, a, as an engineer so quickly uh, from the time I started that I found myself working with the uh, best musicians in Los Angeles, and I got totally intimidated. I, I just, I, I hate to say it, but that, that's what it was, and uh, kind of, I kind of regret it to this day, but I, I just, the console became my instrument. That's how it, I've always said. Well, you certainly found your niche, and uh, I mean, you've got the 50-year career, you know, to go along with it. Uh, before we move on, you you brought up Pablo Cruz. I want to jump into that a little bit, but I, I want to end the uh, Steely Dan conversation with the song Peg uh, from Asia, uh, backup vocals, Michael McDonald. Um, I've seen some stuff on YouTube about the recording of that song. Uh, let's get your perspective on the on the recording and mixing of that song. That's one of the highest rated yacht rock songs of all time, with Steely Dan and, and Michael McDonald on on backup vocals. It can't get much smoother than that. And you were there. No, no, actually, as I said, I cut a version of it, but they recut the song after I bowed out. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, that's, so that's where I, I got confused. I thought you played the drums on that song. So, so the version you cut that you made isn't the one that I hear on the album. No. What's the difference? Like like a lot of these other kinds of outtakes and uh, and like the second arrangement song and so on, it's, it's, it's all up on YouTube these days. You can hear the original version uh, of just the basic track that I cut. In fact, I just found the other day a, a YouTube of all of the basic tracks, which is really, uh, really enlightening to the more musical people uh, in your audience because... One of the great things is, even though the basic track recording was not under a microscope, they did go on and spend months, you know, seven, eight months after I cut the tracks doing overdubs. And the great thing is they did not destroy the simplicity and flavor of the basic tracks. They had it when they had it and they didn't destroy it. So that's what was so great about that. In fact, interestingly, every day for every song, they came in with, when we were tracking, they came in with a piano bass demo, just the two of them, sometimes with a la-la for, for, you know, to show the melody, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes not, and on rare occasion uh, of an actual vocal where the song was already complete, the lyrics were already complete. And uh, more than once during those tracking days, a musician, after listening to the demo, would say, why don't you just overdub the drums on this? It sounds fantastic. It feels great. And Donald would always say, no, no, we'll get it better. And uh, 
Did we? I don't know, because some of those demos were really fantastic. I think that some of them could have worked. But the point being is that they had they had it all worked out uh, already. You know, the basic layout and uh, chord structure and melodic structure and whatnot was was, you know, 70 percent worked out before they hit the studio and then just gave it to these phenomenal musicians to uh, bring home. And when you just mentioned that uh, they'd have some la-la vocal tracks laid down just so the musicians could hear what the melody of the lyrics were going to be before they even had lyrics, uh, did I read that uh, the first time Donald Fagan heard his voice in playback, he told you to turn down his voice because he hated his voice? Yep. That, that's, he, he came in after he put a rough vocal on one of the songs, and uh, I didn't have it especially loud, but uh, he said, turn my voice down. And so I did. And then when it was over, I said, do you not like your voice? And he said, no, it's a necessary evil. <laughs> and I, of course, <laughs> I said, but, you know, you've got it has so much character. And he goes, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, most people feel the same way when you hear your voice on a recording. The average person says, oh, I hate the sound of my voice. I didn't expect yeah. Donald Fagan to say that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. In fact, as I've often said, you know, a lot of singers, uh, I don't know whether they love their voice or not, but they, they that's all they listen to when, you know, you can tell a lot of, a lot of singers when I, I play them a mix and it's like, you know, they'll talk about the voice before they'll talk about all the other instruments. It's just like, you know, make me louder, put more echo on me. I'm not bright enough, something, something, something. Yeah, but Donald, uh, Donald didn't like his voice. Our guest is Bill Schnee. His uh, website is billschnee.com you can purchase his book there or anywhere books are sold Uh, you mentioned Pablo Cruz and working with them uh, you produced uh, and I don't even know if I'm saying this right did you would I say you produced or you engineered their uh, their album you produced and engineered their album A Place in the Sun with the huge hit What You Gonna Do Uh, that is a just a monster song that's just it stands the test of time um, everybody still loves that song. Millions of radio play per year. Uh, and you produced and engineered that song. Tell us about that. Okay. <clears throat> well, A&M Records uh, had signed them, and they had made a record. And uh, the, the head of A&R called me and said, you know, the, they're going to be in town. Would you want to uh, uh, meet with them? And I said, Sure. So, in fact, I, I did meet with them. Did you know who and, they were before? Well, he sent me, I did not, and he sent me an album and said, this is the, uh, th- this is the band, what do you think? And I said, you know, and I liked what I heard, so I got together with them. And what I heard, you know, what I noticed right away was uh, the great grooves that the drummer, who's Steve Price, was a, is a phenomenal drummer, and the original bass player, uh, uh, Bud Cockrell was a great bass player, Southern boy with a, a lot of soul, both in his singing and in his playing. But they didn't have any songs; uh, they were just grooves, and uh, which is fine. And so, the next day, I spoke to the manager and I said, uh, "What you know? What's happening with this?" He said, "Well, they want to go in in a month," and I said, "Oh no, they're, they're, there's no way they can they can go in in a month." Uh, you know, the, the songs aren't ready. I said, let me come up to San Francisco and work with him and let's see where it goes. And he said, okay, I'll talk to him. Well, that was the last I heard from him. They went in the studio with someone else and made their second record, which did not go anywhere. 
And then uh, one day I got a tape in the mail and it had three demos on it. And one of them was the demo of what you're going to do. And I called the manager and I said, I'll be right up. Because <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew it was a hit. And um, and it's funny, too, because, you know, th- you know, there's all kinds of stories in, uh, in the record business like this. But uh, A&M, when the album was done, they picked us another song uh, that we would have never dreamt as a single. And we uh, fortunately, the manager went. Uh, he he lived in San Francisco. He came down to L.A. and started uh, really, really pounding on him, saying, you know, you can't do this. That's I, It's not a hit. It's not a hit. And he talked him into releasing What You're Going to Do, which, of course, was a hit. And um, and then I, I produced uh, the next album, Worlds Away, which um, uh, had Love Will Find a Way and Don't Want to Live Without It on it. And um, that album was mostly written in the studio this is not uncommon you know it this this really wasn't their sophomore record because they'd already made this was their third record after all but it was the first successful one Mm -hmm. and so after a successful record typically artists in those days would hit the road and start playing around to uh to support the record and uh so they'd been on the road you know a good bit which didn't give them enough time to write songs so we ended up writing a lot of that second album in the studio together um but it, that i think the big i think their biggest hit was uh, I, I know we we sold twice as many albums on worlds away as the first one uh and i i love will find a way i think was the biggest single that was their biggest hit yeah for sure and, and when you work with a band like pablo cruz does that give you carte blanche to go to uh any pablo cruz concert and get backstage in the green room mm-hmm. anytime for the rest of your life yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, I have great, I have great, I, I, I'm really uh, happy and proud that I have great relationships with all the artists that I've worked with. And um, uh, yeah, I, 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 and I love seeing them, you know, even down the road, people that we haven't worked with. Boz Gags, when he <clears throat> comes to town, uh, I'll always go and see him and go backstage and talk with him. And we've actually talked about going in again together, which I would like nothing more than. I'd be very excited. He's he's a, been a gem to work with. So Boz Skaggs uh, is one of the few artists that has vocally said he does not like the term Yacht Rock. Um, mo- most everybody else uh, likes the term, or they've grown into it. And I'm obviously a fan of it. I host Yacht Rock Radio. Uh, the songs <laughs> are just so nostalgic. They take me back to 1979, 1980, 1981. It's just, it's just a, such a great time in my life. Um, to think about those times and those songs on the radio, and that's why I like it. But for some reason, Boskag's just, I, I don't know if he thinks it's a condescending term or if hes he just doesn't want to be associated with it, but he doesn't like it. So I, I just wanted to bridge the, the segue here is to ask you, like when you first heard the term Yacht Rock, uh, what you think of it uh, and, and how you think uh, it's affected, the, I guess, the, that era of music in today's airplay. Well, it's interesting because I didn't really hear the term until a couple of three years ago or something. And at the time, uh, I thought it was mostly uh, the 70s stuff that wouldn't wouldn't include everything, but but things like Pablo Cruz, for sure. Uh, but it has it seems to have grown into something that uh, uh, that encompasses a lot of the music made in Los Angeles uh, from the 70s into the 80s. And um 
You, you know, I've never- on the synopsis of your book where it says that you, you know, it, the recorded music in L.A. in the 70s and 80s was the height of uh, music. I mean, and you uh-huh. were there. That That's what Yacht Rock is. It's that se- those strong session musicians, the Jeff Pecoros, the Steve Lukather's, um, Boz Skaggs. All, they're all interconnected, too, the way they've worked yeah. with each other. And uh, when you described what you heard on that tape, when you would drive home every night from the Steely Dan Asia sessions, and you asked yourself, like, what is this? It's it's jazzy, it's soft rock, it's pop, it's rock. What is this? Well, that is that basically encompasses the definition of what we call yacht rock today. Yeah. See, in the beginning, I wouldn't have thought of Boz being included in that because I didn't think that it would include, you know, his stuff uh had become pretty r&b uh you know it was pop r&b almost blue-eyed soul singer mm-hmm. kind of thing but uh you know like hall and oats whatever but uh like i said that maybe that was my misinterpretation of the of the term or or has it grown what but whatever i know that's what it is now is exactly what you described well and it, you know there are some fun debates nationwide about what song does or does not fit the yacht rock genre um, I, I certainly have had some debates on my own Facebook page with people that think uh, a certain song is yacht rock when it's not even close. And those are the uh, fun; those are fun discussions to have uh, about yacht rock that, that you didn't think you were going to have today when when we made this interview. You're like, "What am I talking? Does this guy know who I am? I'm the chairman at the board, and he's asking me about yacht rock." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I let me put it this way. On uh, on uh, Sirius, I certainly on the Yacht Rock channel. I certainly hear a lot of my records. <laughs> well, every time, yeah, you you get to uh, you get to take pride in that. All the you know, what did I read? You you've worked on f- f- over fifty top twenty hits. Yeah, pop hits. A lot more than that if you include uh, you know easy listening and country and everything else. Unbelievable. Yeah. So you can't go anywhere without hearing one of your songs. Are you ever in the airport and you hear one of your songs and you say to the guy next to you, "Hey, I produced that." <laughs> uh, no, I don't say that, but I certainly, hear, I certainly do hear them. All right. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. I thank you for your time. This has just been a fantastic conversation. Um, something I read in your bio uh, that was really kind of interesting that brought out a, a whole nother, I didn't even know that um, sort of fun fact here, is that you mixed the soundtrack for the movie The Princess Bride and that in 1987. And that movie is just a beloved favorite uh, for so many generations. Myself, my kids, we love that movie. We've seen that movie 25 times each. And I didn't know that the music arranged for that movie was done by Mark Knopfler. Yep. Yep. Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits fame, fabulous guitarist, one of on anybody's list of the best five guitar players in the world. Uh, but yes, and uh, not only that, it was all done on a synclavier, which means, you know, no other than his guitar, uh, all of the orchestrations were, were done basically with samples in, uh, from a computer. And that was the first time I'd ever mixed, uh, I believe, no, it wasn't the first time. Uh, I, had, I mixed an album for the great, uh, who's gone on, one of my best friends that's gone on to be one of the top film composers in the world james newton howard i mixed one of his very first movies and it was on a synclavier also anyway yeah it was uh, so it was all done on a computer and the funny part about that is the you know you start mixing and of course if it's already recorded on tape at the time or these days 
you know, on a hard disk from, from a computer, the, the music is very static. It's always the same. Well, if we would be mixing and he would hear something that he wrote. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can phrase that better. Or wait, I, I don't like that chordal thing. I can change a couple of notes. Give me a second. And he would go into the computer and, and start working on it while I sat there and waited for it. But um, yeah, that was the first of uh, several albums I did with Mark, uh, including the, the last Dire Straits album that I recorded in England with him. And with Jeff Beccaro playing drums, funny enough. That's amazing. Yeah, so did you get to go to the Princess Bride uh, movie premiere or any of that stuff? No, no. It it was, uh, I think, it, no, I didn't. I think it was in New York. Well, we mixed it in New York, but um, no, I didn't. Didn't, uh, didn't get to meet Andre the Giant? No, not Andre um, the Giant. When was the last time you saw that movie, Princess Bride? Uh, I haven't seen it in a little while, but. Uh, it, like you, you know, I hear all the time that it's on everybody's list of their of their top movies, and it's a great one. You're connected to so many great American pop culture references, and no matter what the uh, genre or what people like, there's something out there that you've worked on, no matter what you like, that you probably know who Bill Schnee is without actually knowing who he is. Uh, before I let you go... Uh, I saw something on your website that is very cool that you actually touched on at the beginning of this interview. Uh, in your book, uh, Chairman at the Board, uh, I'm going to get the whole title here, Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation. Uh, you mentioned there was so many great stories that uh, got cut from the final edit of the book that you've got a... Um, a piece or a button on your website called got a key got a key and i was looking at your website i'm like what is this and i clicked on it and it says you know for more stories and pictures from bill schnee that didn't fit in the book enter your key here so right i'm guessing that in the book at the end of the book there's a a key or a keyword right. that you can enter into your website to get more content Right. Did, did you try to put something in it? No, I, 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 did, I didn't have a key. I didn't want right. I, I well, to get in trouble. Do, the cute thing is, if you do, the programmer was having fun. If you put it in, instead of opening the door, it says, you didn't read the book, did you? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, but yes, at the end, there's uh, when I turned the book in, you know, it says in the intro, I wrote this book for anyone like me that loves music and records, but hasn't been as fortunate to go behind the curtain. And to that end, I was writing it for the, the guy next door, and I would think your audience is perfect for it. Um, but not, you know, the people in the business were probably expecting much more uh, of a training seminar. And so when I turned it in and I asked the publisher, what do you think of my voice, how I wrote it for the guy next door? He said, well, yeah, it's great, but I think for educational purposes, you should put some stuff. So I went back and wrote 15,000 more words and uh and it's most of which was it was a pain to write to be honest but i'm really glad i did for a number of reasons not the least of which is it forced me to think about things that have basically become totally intuitive and you know how did i first come up with these ideas 50 years ago mm -hmm. uh and then secondly because there are a lot of people that uh that wanted that kind of thing well right before that just because the guy next door might go what I love that the editor did was he made those 15,000 words appendices. There's two appendixes at the end, and that's where the pseudo-technical stuff is. 
And a lot of people have responded to that stuff. It makes me feel good. But I always think about the guy next door that would read four or five pages and go, this is boring. And so right before the appendices is where I put, uh, if, if you still want more, over a third of the book had to be cut out in editing. Go to BillSchnee.com and put the, the magic phrase in the box and go behind the scenes and you get more stories, more pictures and everything. And, and it's really cool about the, the pictures because unfortunately, as I learned, the publisher would not let me put any picture in the book that we didn't have the photographer sign off on. And I, some of these pictures, I have no idea, who, including my band, the L.A. Teens. You know, I, I lost track of this guy the week after he took our picture in 1965. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, but so behind the, you know, they can get sued for that. Uh, if so, I have all those on the website. And if somebody, if there is a picture on there that someone says they took, then they'll tell me to take it down. I'll take it down. But you get a lot more pictures. And the other cool thing is that I, I went ahead and put YouTubes of the songs. So while you're reading the stuff uh, on the website, um, the song will be right there on YouTube if you wanted to listen to it again. That's a great idea. Uh, of those bonus pictures or any of the pictures in the book, what is your single favorite picture? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know. There's probably, you know, it'll be some of the wild ones. Uh, there's one that there's one where I'm editing tape and I look, uh, in the old days, you know, where you had to edit tape with a razor blade, uh, where I look kind of crazy. Uh, there's one of my favorite ones is a picture when I was doing the Ringo album and we were working insane hours and I'm in the mastering at the mastering lab that I mentioned earlier. I'm at the mastering lab and I literally, I'm, my hand is on my knee and I'm asleep. (laughs) Somebody... (laughs) And somebody snapped a photo of that. The mad scientist at work. Uh, His name is Bill Schnee. I can't thank you enough, Bill, for joining me. Uh, The book is Chairman at the Board, Recording the Soundtrack of a Generation, available where you buy books or at BillSchnee.com. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Well, good. I'm glad. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. You're listening to Yacht Rock Radio, the smoothest soft rock from the late 70s and early 80s. For more smooth, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Yacht Rock Radio.